Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Labdoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah beneath, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops, to the river Kishon, and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There, Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kadesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Hagoyim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in, don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes and asks you, is anyone in there, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you are looking for. So he went in with her, and there Sisera lay with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. 
And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. So Judges chapter 5. On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will praise the Lord, the God of Israel, in song. When you, Lord, went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. Travelers took to winding paths. Villagers in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose a mother in Israel. God chose new leaders when war came to the city gates. But not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. You who ride on white donkeys sitting on your saddle blankets, and you who walk along the road, consider the voice of the singers at the watering places. They recite the victories of the Lord, the victories of his villages in Israel. Then the people of the Lord went to the, down to the city gates. Wake up! Wake up, Deborah, wake up, wake up, break out in song. Arise, Barak, take captive your captives, son of Abinoam. The remnant of the nobles came down. The people of the Lord came down to me against the mighty. Some came from Ephraim, whose roots were in Amalek. Benjamin was with the people who followed you. From Machir, captains came down. From Zebulun, who, those who bear a commander's staff. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Yes, Issachar was with Barak, sent under his command into the valley. In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. The people of Zebulun risked their very lives. So did Naphtali on the terraced fields. Kings came. They fought. The kings of Canaan fought. At Tanakh, by the waters of Medago, they took no plunder of silver. From the heavens, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon. March on, my soul, be strong. Then thundered the horse's hooves, galloping, galloping go his mighty steeds. Curse, Miroz, said the angel of the Lord. Curse its people bitterly, because they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, most blessed of tent-dwelling women. He asked for water, 
and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet, he sank, he fell, there he lay. At her feet, he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Through the window peered Sisera's mother. Behind the lattice, she cried out, why is his chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariots delayed? The wisest of her ladies answer her. Indeed, she keeps saying to herself, are they not finding and dividing the spoils? A woman or two for each man, colorful garments as plunder for Sisera. Colorful garments embroidered, highly embroidered garments for my neck. All this as plunder. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But may all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. Then the land had peace for 40 years. This is God's word. Good evening. Uh, I'm Nick. I'm new on staff here. Um, I'm the outreach minister. Um, Let's pray and then we'll dive in. Lord God, please meet us in your word this evening. We're here. We're your servants. We're listening. Please speak to our hearts and change us, we pray. Amen. I'd love to start by telling you about a conversation I once had with my dad. I was about 15 years old and we're sitting in the car and my dad says to me um, that everybody in the world can be split into two types of people. Okay, there are thermometers and there are thermostats. The difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. A thermometer reflects whatever the temperature is around it. A thermostat sets a different temperature. So the the thermometer, that's the person who, um, you put them with one group of people and they just reflect that group of people, that, you know, the attitudes, the, the values, the behaviors. You put that same person with a different group and they, they conform. They start to reflect those attitudes and behaviors, a thermometer. A thermostat is a person who sets a different temperature. You know, a person who, who marches to the beat of a, of a different drum. I don't mean that they're, they're really disagreeable. They'll often be... Um, quite conserved and gracious, but they don't conform. But they're different. And their their difference starts to influence people around them. They set a different temperature. Which do you want to be, son? (laughs) Now, I remember remember, remember sitting in the car and thinking, I want want to be that one. I want to be the thermostat. Wouldn't you? Like, I mean, moment by moment, I might be too scared, but deep down, I'd rather be that kind of person, wouldn't you? You're the kind of person who, who, who does what's right, not what's easy. The kind of person who knows truth and beauty and goodness and stands for it, even when it's unpopular. The kind of person who, who marches to the beat of a different drum. Wouldn't you rather that, you know, not, 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 not passively conforming to the people around you, but setting a different temperature? Now, um, in, in the book of Judges, God's people are meant to be doing that. They're meant to be thermostats, like setting a different temperature, radiating God's glory to the nations around them. 
But what keeps happening is they keep being thermometers. You know, like, like water poured into a jug. They keep just taking on the shape of the nations around them. They, they, they keep forgetting to, to stand for what God stands for and oppose what God opposes. Um, and like every chapter, that, 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 we're going to see that um, uh, at the beginning of chapter 4. It's going to follow the same pattern. They sin, uh, they get judged, they cry out for help, and God gives them this glorious victory. But the, the unique thing um, in, in chapters 4 and 5 is that they keep drawing our attention. You may have noticed this during the reading. It keeps drawing our attention to people who fight and people who back off. To people who stand and people who are just passive. Right? To, to thermostats and thermometers. And as it shows us this, I think it's trying to give us the two things that we need to be thermostats. Two things we need. They're the points on your, on your handout. We need to glory in God's victory. And we need to see the shame of failing to, to fight. See that sh- failing to fight is shameful. So that's what we're going to be uh, looking through. Just a, a little brief note on how these, these two chapters work. Um, in chapter 4, we get a factual account of this battle. And in chapter 5, we get a song reflecting on it. So if chapter 4 is the, the, uh, the documentary, chapter 5 would be the musical. And we're going to, um, we're going to just flip back and forth between them as, as we go through. And before we get to um, the glory of God's victory, you just need to, to, to kind of, for us to register just how horrendous this situation really was. Have a look down at verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1 with me. Uh, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, who was based in uh, Harasheth Hagayim. <clears throat> because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. The God's people are being cruelly oppressed by the Canaanites. And I was trying to think, like, what must that feel like? Because it's, it's not normal for us in the UK to experience that. You know, the nations that are hostile to us, that try and terrorize us, and they're on the other side of the world. Imagine if they were really close. Imagine if France was actively hostile. Imagine if um, Scotland, Ireland, Wales actively terrorizing I mean, the UK. Imagine if it was people the other side of the river. How unsafe you would feel as you go about your daily lives. We get a little window into how it feels in chapter 5, uh, verse 6. In the days of uh, Shamgar, son of Anna, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned Travelers took to winding paths. Like people are too scared to walk down the high street. People that have grown up in their neighborhoods their whole lives, too scared to go outside because they don't know what's going to happen. Horrible situation. And, and, and the, the, the linchpin who's, uh, who's, who's creating this oppression is this bloke called Cicero, who we meet in uh, chapter 4, verse 2. He's the commander of uh, the Canaanite army. He's got 900 
um, ironclad chariots. This is at the point in history where the Iron Age is sweeping away the Bronze Age. So that's like an armored tank division. No one can come close to that. He can do what he wants. He's the bully on the estate that everybody is scared of. And he's an absolute monster. We get this, um, this character reference from his mum in chapter 5, verse 28. She's waiting for him to come home. Through the window peered Sisera's mother. Behind the lattice, she cried out, why is his chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariots delayed? The wisest of her ladies answer her. Indeed, she keeps saying to herself, are they not finding and dividing the spoils? A woman or two for each man. Friend says, oh, you know Sisera. He's just out raping people. Oh, yeah, it sounds like him. It's actually a bit worse than that. You know, it says, you see, it says a woman or two for each man. In Hebrew, it's, it's literally a womb or two for each man. It's about the most callous description of rape I can imagine. Sisera is the womb collector, violently cruel rapist, oppressing God's people. Imagine what it would feel like for 20 years. Every time my wife leaves the home, I'm terrified. Okay, Sisera and his boys are around. Every time my sister leaves the house, I'm terrified. Imagine what that would feel like. 20 years. God's people cry out for help, and God begins this, 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 this glorious, victorious rescue. So, chapter 4, verse 4. Now, Deborah, a prophet, the wife of uh, Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to there to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, uh, from Kedesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the river Kishon, and give him into your hands. There's two unlikely characters. Uh, Deborah, who's, the, uh, who's a prophet, the only female judge leading God's people at the time, and uh, Barak, this like military figure, kind of reluctant military figure. And so Deborah goes to Barak one day. Barak, here's your mission, should you choose to accept it. Uh, you've got to raise an army, go to Mount Tabor. Meanwhile, I'm going to ensure that the vast hordes of Sisera's forces come against you. Like, that's it. She doesn't give him any more of the plan. <laughs> You can imagine Barak's confusion, can't you? Like, oh, I'm just going to pause you there for a second, Deborah. All right. You want me to take an army of foot soldiers and wait on the side of a mountain while you arrange for the entire Canaanite armored tank division to line up against us? Yeah. Like, it seems totally crazy. Apart from one vital detail. Do you notice in verse 6? Who is it that commands this? The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go. The God of the universe tells you to stand. You stand. Overwhelming odds. You stand. Like no human chance of success. You stand. And, and he does. Barak has a little wobble, which we're going to come back to in verse 8. 
come back to later. Um, but from, from verses 12 to 14, he gathers this army uh, on Mount Tabor. There should be a picture of it coming up. Yeah, that's Mount Tabor. Um, and Sisera lines up his forces down in the valley. So you can imagine them, uh, God's army, army of God's people on the, on the mountain. Sisera is down in the valley here. For a moment, try to, try to imagine what it would have been like to be standing on the side of that mountain with Barak's army. Okay, yeah, your legs are aching because you've been marching all day. You look at the, the, the guys next to you, and you realize they don't even have weapons that we see in chapter 5, verse 8. Right, you, you look in their shaking hands. They're grasping rocks and sticks and pitchforks. And then you glance down the valley at Sisera's forces. Right, this, this enemy that's been oppressing you, that's been making your life miserable for 20 years, and they're so much stronger than you. You've got no chance of beating them. And the trumpet sounds and they start racing over the plain towards you. Terrifying. <laughs> Until God acts. Chapter 5, verse 4. When you, Lord went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. The clouds burst. It seems like there was a flash flood, which the area is famous for, by the way. And, and, and in verse 19, it carries on the description. Kings came, they fought. The kings of Canaan fought at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo, um, but they took no plunder of silver. From the heavens, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon. March on, my soul. Be strong. Right? The stars fought. Isn't that an amazing image? But this victory was an act of God. And they, they try and imagine how that felt. Right, you're watching these chariots racing towards you over the plain, and then they get stuck in the mud. As soon as you watch, they get swept backwards down the valley. Right, that, that enemy that's been oppressing you for years, that you've got no chance of beating, you watch as God just washes them away. It's a, it's, it's a little picture of what Christ does for the Christian on the cross. Like our enemy is not Sisera, it's not, the, it's not the chariots, our enemy is sin and death. That is the overwhelming enemy that I can't beat. You know, those habits that I'm enslaved to, secret shames, those deep flaws, and the punishment from sin that they deserve that's rumbling towards me at my death. Washed away. Not by the river Kishon but by the blood that flowed from Christ on the cross. Have a look at this verse. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, wash our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Like that, 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 that elation that the army must have felt as they washed, watched their enemies washed away, that can be a Christian's elation every single day. As I look at the cross and I see Christ washing away that enemy that I couldn't defeat. I can glory in that. 
that, 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 that glorying in that is what will give us the power to be a thermostat rather than a thermometer. But the victory gets even better than that. God doesn't just wash the enemies away. He utterly humiliates the oppressor. Remember Sisera, the wound-collecting, violent, rapist oppressor, the big badass. He, he, he runs away from this battle. He flees, and he, he runs for shelter in the tent of a political ally. And when he gets there, he finds a defenseless lady. And look at what happens in verse 18. She welcomes him in. Come on in, come on in. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. She puts a blanket around him. Then verse, 13, verse 19. I'm thirsty, he says. And she gives him a nice bottle of milk. He tucks the blanket around him. He snuggles up for a little sleep. Verse 20 says, could you, could you stand at my door and make sure no one comes to get me? This big, scary badass, cuddled up with a blankie and a bottle of milk, asking this girl to keep him safe. And then we get to verse 21. Jael gets right to the point. Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Think, yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> I know that none of the Bible is pointless, but I feel like those last three words are having a very good go. <laughs> yeah, he died. <laughs> but the, the point here is, is to see how embarrassing this is meant to be for Cicero, right? The violent molester of women is violently ended by a woman. You see? God's making a spectacle of Sisera here. And again, it's meant to be a picture of our salvation, a public spectacle. Have a look at this verse um, that should be coming up from Colossians. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. Again, so God uses the violence of a woman to destroy the violent woman molester. God uses sin and death at the cross to destroy sin and death. Right, the cross is it's the ultimate expression of sin, isn't it, right? God's son comes to the world, and we kill him. But in that very act of sin, killing the son of God, the power of sin is broken. You can imagine death, can't you, laughing as it swallows the author of life. What does Christ do? Smashes through death, making a hole in it that we can follow through, breaking its power. Using sin and death to destroy sin and death, making a spectacle of them, triumphing over them. The battle is already won for the Christian. The glorious victory is already achieved. We can glory in that. We've been singing tonight, haven't we? Death, where is your sting? It's triumphed over. Now, What's that got to do with being, being a thermostat? Well, here's the point. If, if you don't glory in God's victory, you're never going to have the courage to make a stand. 
If you don't glory in God's victory, you're never going to have the courage to make a stand. If you look anywhere else but the cross and the resurrection, you're, you're just going to lose heart. Like if I look at the situation around me, if I look at just how uninterested my mates are in the Christian faith, what's the point in standing out in front of them? It's just easier to be a thermometer. If I look around at the, 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 the culture around, it seems so increasingly hostile. I think, what's the point making a stand here? It's just easier to be a thermometer. But if you look at the cross and the resurrection of Christ, if you glory in that victory that's already happened, I realize that the outcome's decided. Or I know how this story ends. I am going to stand. I am going to keep fighting. I am going to be a thermostat because I know where this is ending. It's ending with every knee bowing to Christ. Glory in that victory. That is what will give you the, the courage to be a thermostat rather than a thermometer. So that's the first thing we need to do, to glory in God's victory. The second point we're going to come on and see is that um, we need to see the, shame, see the shame of failing to fight. But before we do that, I just want to pause and come over here for a second and just, just make it really clear what we're talking about when I keep saying kind of fighting and standing. Because I just want to make sure that nobody leaves here and goes and buys a tent peg and some ham a la hammer. Um, if that's your plan, no, no, no. <laughs> You've misunderstood. Um, what are we talking about when we talk about Christians fighting? Um, well, a verse should be coming up on the, on, on the screen again as that helps us from the New Testament. Um, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Right, the battle that's raging around us, the battle that you and I are called to join, um, is a spiritual battle. Now, the Bible says that Christ has won the victory at the cross. The outcome's decided. One day he's going to return and, and, and remove all evil. But in the meantime, uh, the power of sin and death is broken, but the presence of sin is still here. It's a bit like the chariots in that valley. Right? They're broken, their power is broken, they're being washed away, but their presence is, is still there. It's the same with e evil now. Like Christ has broken the power of it, but like Barak had to push the chariots out of the valley, Christians are called to join in the fight, to push evil um, out of the world where we see it. Three ways, three ways that we do that. If you've got a pen, this might be worth writing down. Three ways that we fight this battle. Number one, we fight sin in our own hearts. Number two, we fight for people to hear the gospel and be reconciled to God. And number three, we fight injustice as we see it in society around us. We fight sin in our own hearts. We fight for people to hear the gospel and we fight injustice in the world around us. And again, before we move on, let me just be crystal clear. This isn't a macho thing. Like if you're picturing Arnie with a machine gun. <laughs> no, we fight with humility. We fight with grace. We fight with, with love. You know, turning the other cheek, blessing people that persecute us, laying down our lives for the good of other people. This is not a call to be aggressive, but it is a call to stand. It is a call to stand. There is a battle going on. 
and failing to get in this fight is shameful. That's what we're going we're gonna to see now. So we're going to start by, 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 by having a little look at Barak's wobble. Check out chapter 4, verse 8 with me. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I'll go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Barak's reluctant, tries to kind of haggle. And so the glory is going to go to someone else, is going to go to a woman. Now, his reluctance doesn't sound that bad to us, does it? But if you think about it for a moment, God has commanded him to stand. God has assured him of victory. And Barak insists that a lady comes with him and puts her life in mortal danger just to hold his hand. In fact, because of his reluctance to stand and fight the the fight God's called him to, two women end up having to put their lives in mortal danger. There's something shameful about that. Something that doesn't deserve glory when we don't step up to the fight that we're, we're called to. And in verse 8, he kind of tries to negotiate. If you do this, then I'll do that. It reminds me, you might have heard the, um, the story, a little boy who sat down to write his Christmas requests to God one year. And he starts, dear God, I've been good for six months now. I'd really like you to give me a BMX. And then he thinks for a second and he, he scratches out six months. Dear God, I've been good for a whole month now. I'd really like you to give me a BMX. And he thinks and scratches out one month and says, Dear God, I've been good for at least a week. And then he hangs his head, he scratches that out and thinks for a minute. And he gets up and he goes downstairs to the little nativity scene. And he picks out the statue of Mary, puts it in his pocket, goes back upstairs and sits down to write a new letter. Dear God, if you ever want to see your mother again. <laughs> it's a ridiculous idea, isn't it? Trying to negotiate with God. But that's what Barak's doing. If you look in verse 8, I'll, I'll obey you if... Dot, 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 dot. Yeah, yeah, God, I, I, I'll take a stand for you at work if I get a promotion first and a bit more job security. Right, then I'll make a stand for you. Yeah, God, I'll make a stand for you if... I just get a bit more confident in my own kind of faith first. Then I'll make a stand for you. God, I'll obey you in this area of my life if... Fill in the blanks. Negotiate, trying to negotiate with God when he's called you to join this fight. There's something embarrassing about that. He he, he hits the same thing from a, a different angle in verses 13 to 17. They're so good. I'm going to read them out. Um, The remnant of the nobles came down. The people of the Lord came down to me against the mighty. Sorry, chapter 5, verse 13. Some came from Ephraim, whose roots are in Amalek. Benjamin was with the people who followed you. From Machia, captains came down. From Zebulun, those who bear a commander's staff. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Yes, Issachar was with Barak, sent under his command into the valley. In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of hearts. Why did you stay among the sheepfolds? To hear the whistling for the flocks? In the districts of Reuben, there was was much searching of hearts. 
Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. The people of Zebulun risked their very lives. So did Naphtali on the terraced fields. It's contrasting the tribes who did stand and the tribes that, that didn't. The people that made excuses. And you notice what their excuses are like at the end of verse 15. They, they really search their hearts and then they decide to listen to the whistling for the sheep. Like, oh, yeah, I'm really thinking about it. I'm really like, just, I'm wondering what's right for me at this stage of my life. And, and I, look, I would come, I would, but I would. But people are whistling for the sheep, so kind of got to go and, kind of got to go and listen, listen to that, right? It's a ridiculous excuse. It's a ridiculous reason not to join a battle, but that's the point. It's trying to show us that when there's a battle going on, whatever reason you give, whatever excuse you give, it's ridiculous. Like God sees straight through it. Now, our excuses might sound way more convincing to us than, than this. They're subtle, aren't they? That's why we believe them. Here, here are three, three excuses. Yeah, I, I would take a stand at work, but people are so hostile, they're just going to write me off. And then they won't listen to me when I tell them about Jesus. So I'm just, I'm just going to keep quiet and up never, end up never taking a stand at all. Subtle, right? Because I want people to hear about Jesus, I'm not going to take a stand. Or excuse number two. I want to talk to this friend about Jesus, but I'm just going to wait until the friendship's a bit more solid, until we're a bit more comfortable with each other. And you end up never having the conversation. What about fighting injustice? Like, there's so much injustice, excuse number three, there's so much injustice in the world around me, I don't know where to begin. It's subtle, right? But if you end up, like, don't get me wrong, obviously there's a place for being emotionally intelligent, obviously there's a place for picking your battles, and obviously we can't do everything. But if you end up never taking a stand, It's an excuse. All, all our excuses, they amount to listening to the whistling for the sheep. God sees straight through them. And in fact, it gets kind of shocking in verse 23. Look at the way this cuts through our excuses. Have a look down at verse 23 of chapter 5. Curse Merods, said the angel of the Lord. Curse its people bitterly because they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty. God sees through our excuses. Like there are people today in the world dying for the name of Christ. There's a, there's a battle for souls that's being fought now. And I'm scared to tell my mates about Jesus. What, what's my excuse? God sees straight through it. It's embarrassing, it's shameful. At the end of the day, which of these two groups of people do you want to be like? Look at your funeral as people are looking back on your life. What do you want them to say? 
the life that's excuse-making, <laughs> that's backing off, it's passive, it's conforming, a thermometer. Or standing against the mighty, contending for the cause of Christ. Ultimately, do you want to be a thermometer or do you want to be a thermostat? Well, so what? What, what? what is God inviting us to do here this evening in light of this? I think God's inviting us to, to, to get stuck in with the fight. And what, what might that look like for you this week? I've just thought of three, three practical examples. It might be something totally different for you, and that's fine. Don't try and do all three of these things. But just three, three things it might be. First of all, fight sin. Is there a sin in your heart that you've stopped fighting? Just think, oh, it's never going to change. Fight it. Look up Bible verses that relate to that, that issue and memorize them. That's your sword in this fight. Fight your sin. Secondly, share the gospel. Uh, pray each day on your way to work. Pray for a chance to share the gospel with someone. Do that for two weeks and see what happens. See what opportunities he brings your way. Pray to share the gospel. That's number two. Number three, fight injustice. Like There are trafficked women in this neighborhood, the neighborhood of this church. The, the, the charity Tamar that our church is involved with is, is fighting that injustice. They need money, they need prayer, they need volunteers. Get stuck in. If there's another injustice on your heart, do something. If you're not sure what to do, raise some money. Do a sponsored whatever. Fight sin. Fight to share the gospel fight injustice. God has won this glorious victory and not getting involved in the fight is shameful. Get stuck in. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you've triumphed over sin and death and the powers of this evil and you call us to join in the fight now against sin in our hearts and sharing the gospel and against injustice. Lord, please give us what we need. We would like to be thermostats. We would like to be those that stand for the truth. Please give us what we need this week. Please help us to glory in your victory. Please help us to see the shame of failing to fight. In your name and for your glory, we pray. Amen.